Welcome to You News, the podcast using the power of Univision to bring the news that matters to you in English. Today is Friday, October 11th. I'm Lorraine Cáceres. These are today's headlines. The former ambassador to Ukraine testifying on Capitol Hill today as the impeachment inquiry grows. That diplomat warning that private interests have taken over U.S. foreign policy. After President Trump withdraws U.S. troops, an unfolding disaster is growing in Syria. Civilians now reportedly being attacked as Turkey pushes deeper into the war-torn country. A massive wildfire now exploding in and around Los Angeles. At least one person is dead and 100,000 are now under evacuation orders. We'll have the latest on the Inferno. This and much more today on You News, recorded live in our newsroom in Miami. Now to the presidency in peril. Important testimony today in Congress from Maria Jovanovic, the former ambassador to Ukraine. This as the whistleblower now says they want to submit a written statement to Congress instead of testifying in person. And new polls show support for inquiry is growing among independents. She's a former ambassador to the Ukraine and a star witness for Democrats in the House. According to the Washington Post, Marie Yovanovitch was fired by the president, accusing her of undermining his efforts to investigate the Bidens. In the July 25th call with the Ukrainian president, Trump referred to her as bad news. Her testimony was hanging by a thread Friday morning, just hours before her appearance. Many unsure if she would be allowed to testify. On Thursday, the president was asked if if he would block her since earlier this week, he blocked the EU ambassador from testifying. I just don't think that you can have all of these people testifying about every conversation you've had. In this case, we have a transcript and I've given it almost immediately. No, I don't think people should be allowed. You have to run a country. I don't think you should be allowed to do that. The Washington Post is reporting that even right before the call with Ukraine, four White House officials were already concerned about it. These, some of these officials were going to lawyers inside the White House with their concerns even before the call because of all of the stuff they saw happening. And that would include the removal of a U.S. ambassador with no explanation, the antics of Rudy Giuliani, who's promoting conspiracy theories about Kiev on television and planning trips to Kiev, and other developments that were getting closer and closer to the White House, including a meeting at the White House in early July that really uh, unnerved a number of people in the room. Meanwhile, lawyers for the original whistleblower now say the government employee wants to give a written testimony in order to shield his or her identity. Democrats had been fearing for the CIA agent's safety, but it's unclear if they'll accept a written statement. So far, no date and time has been established. Support for an impeachment inquiry continues to grow. Two weeks ago, independents were mostly against it, and now 54% are in favor, while the number against the inquiry has declined to 41%. The ambassador to the EU, Gordon Sondland, who was blocked from testifying earlier this week by Trump and the State Department, says he will appear before Congress next Wednesday. He is one of many people set to testify in the coming days. 
Meanwhile, moving on, the House investigation into President Trump's finances is still alive, even though Deutsche Bank says it does not have the president's tax returns. The House had subpoena financial records from the bank earlier this year. At the same time today, a federal appeals court ruled that President Donald Trump's financial records must be turned over to the House of Representatives. The firm... Mazars USA has provided accounting services to Trump, and he went to court to prevent that company from turning over the records. The House Committee on Oversight and Reform subpoenaed records from Mazars, Mazars in April. Trump could still appeal to the Supreme Court. A new study suggests Russian social media tactics involving retweets helped spread hacked Democratic emails in 2016. On the eve of the release of hacked Clinton campaign emails, Russian-linked trolls began retweeting messages from thousands of accounts on both extremes of the American ideological spectrum. Experts say the retweeted users ultimately gained a wider audience, tweeted more, and helped push American public debate to extremes. Meanwhile, South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham admitting he got pranked by Russians pretending to be from Turkey. That's according to an announcement made by his office Thursday. The call happened in August. The South Carolina Republican spoke with two Russian pranksters in a conversation he thought he was having with Turkey's defense minister. According to audio of the call provided to political, Graham calls the Kurds a threat to Turkey. This appears to contradict his public statements in recent days regarding President Trump's decision to pull American troops out of the way of Turkish invasion of Syria. Overnight, a wildfire sparked outside of Los Angeles, growing quickly to thousands of acres. It has already destroyed homes and prompted mandatory evacuations. Salvador Duran is in Porter Ranch, California, with the latest. We are in Los Angeles, and uh, we are in a state of emergency in the entire county due to these fires. We're going to show you some incredible video that we shot overnight of these wildfires that are just ripping through entire neighborhoods and some of the mountains here in the vicinity. Now, I can tell you that at least a thousand firefighters are battling the flames in L.A. County alone. We also have another fire that's also out of control in Riverside County. And this morning, we got an update from authorities telling us exactly what to expect in the next 24 hours. Let's listen in. These weather conditions are significant in terms of brush threat. The relative humidity has dropped down to as low as 3%. Right now, it's 7%. The winds were sustained about 20, 20 to 25 miles per hour with gusts over 50 miles per hour. So as you can imagine, the embers from the wind have been traveling a significant distance, which causes another fire to start. So the alert has been extended up until tomorrow, Saturday. We are right now at one of the shelters here in Los Angeles. This is Granada Hills. And with me is Mr. Roberto Mendoza, who tells us that you got the alert to leave your house right away at 1 a.m. this morning. Tell us what that experience was like. Yeah, basically we've been hearing the alerts on the Amber Alert signs and all the phones and basically, you know, we looked at the TV and the media and they were saying, you know, you're in the vicinity of Porter Ranch and Granada Hill, please leave your houses. And I think that was a convenient way to do it because I have four kids, 
and my father-in-law, my wife as well. And then it's hard to move a lot of people in a minute's way and a hard way. It must have been really horrible to have to go through all that smoke because you said your house was just full of smoke at one point. Yes, yes. Uh, it was like almost like 2.30 in the morning when we felt that the smoke was very hard and it was getting into the house first and the second level of the house. And then we decided to grab whatever we could at that, uh, at that moment and just leave and, and, you know, move out and find a shelter. Mr. Mendoza, thank you very much. I know that your daughter hasn't even had any sleep because yeah. of the, you've been here at the shelter now. Mr. Mendoza lives in an area that's called Porter Ranch, which is here in northern L.A. County. Um, they've evacuated the entire community, and it's over, I believe, over 10,000 people that yes. live in that area. Okay. So uh, they can be expected to be out of their homes for at least the next 28, uh, 24 to 48 hours. And a lot of the shelters are full. They are actually asking people to go to different shelters because the one that's right nearby his house is now full to capacity. That's the information. We're live in Granada Hills. I'm Salvador Duran. We're sending it back to you in the studio. Now let's go to the escalating tensions in Syria and the assault by the Turkish military. There are unconfirmed reports of hundreds of Kurdish fighters already killed as thousands of people are trying to escape the growing conflict. Meanwhile, the Trump administration may be taking steps to halt the Turkish advance. Claudia Oceda has the details from Washington, D.C. Claudia? That's right. Turkish officials are saying that more than 300 Kurdish fighters are dead, but these numbers are not independently corroborated. The Kurdish assault on northern Syria is escalating. Cutting the crosshairs of war are tens of thousands of people who are trying to escape the Turkish attack. This woman is escaping with her family. She says they are fleeing after seeing innocent civilians, including children being target in the Turkish strikes. Why the Americans flee, she asks, before her family climbs in the back of a truck with nowhere else to go. They say they will sleep in the desert. Booming explosions could be heard in the region. There are Turkish airstrikes aimed at the Kurds. The Turkish military is seen firing their way into Syrian villages. Turkey says the attacks will continue until all terrorists are neutralized. There were casualties on both sides, and Turkey is reporting his first military fatality. The Kurdish people blamed President Trump. They feel gave the Kurds permission for the attack by pulling troops out of the area. President Trump is now suggesting he might use economic sanctions in an effort to mediate in a new deal between Turkey and Syria. And about possible sanctions, President Trump is saying that it could be something very, very tough. Of course, it could be also economic sanctions. Now, back to you. Thank you, Claudia. We'll be following that story. More of you news after this short break. Imagine a daily newscast that speaks to you about your world in plain English. Each weekday, we partner with Hispanic America's most trusted news source to bring you the stories from home and abroad that matter to you. They don't know when they're going to be able to go back to work. Victims also from Mexico and this mass shooting. Officials in and out of the residence. We're going to continue fighting. You News covers the news of your world and makes it easy to understand. Your News, Your World, 
U News on Fusion. Welcome back to U News. Now to protests over the Trump administration's Migrant Protection Protocols program. That policy forces migrants to remain in Mexico while they seek asylum, and it's creating a huge waiting period and no clear answers from the U.S. officials. Migrants in Mexico are protesting the policy, forcing the international bridge to close for almost 15 hours. As Nidia Cavazo tells us, the bridge is now open, but migrants are still waiting. We want to study, they're chanting, we want to study. These children join their parents in protest against the U.S. government in the middle of the international bridge between Brownsville, Texas and Matamoros, Mexico. We are tired, we really are tired, says Yadid, a Nicaraguan immigrant. They're not giving us answers. Those who have their court hearings are coming back to Mexico with no answer. Yadid is one of thousands of migrants seeking asylum in the United States, but must do so by waiting in Mexico in a migrant camp next to the bridge. The kids are dehydrated, there is a lot of sickness and contamination, says Yadid. We don't have a place to bathe, we use the river. Close to 300 migrants united in protest by blocking the traffic flow from both sides and forcing U.S. officials to close the bridge around 1 a.m. on Wednesday. For decades, migrants were allowed to petition for asylum in the United States when fleeing prosecution, often staying with relatives. The rules now mandate they must stay in Mexico for the duration of their court procedures and only allowed to cross to the U.S. for hearings. Many sat on the bridge sidelines and rode throughout the day. Others had their children in their arms, all waiting for a response from the U.S. government. Mexico is a receiver of the choices made by U.S. officials. We are doing our best to take care of the situation. These were Matamoros' mayor's words as he addressed the press and migrants at the bridge. It wasn't until close to four in the afternoon that operations were resumed and migrants left the bridge, but said they do have plans to continue their protests. For U News, Nidia Cavazos. This week, California Governor Gavin Newsom signed a new law that will cap rent increases statewide. That legislation, an attempt to address the state's continuing housing crisis. As Dulce Castellano explains, a new report suggests that Latino households in California are having a particularly difficult time staying afloat. The cost of living in California is rising so fast, it's becoming almost impossible to live in parts of the state. La renta? the rent, the insurance, and the food. Elizabeth says her family is small, but still struggles financially. I have two jobs, and still, it's not enough. And her family is only made up of three people. And she's not alone. An Insight Center for Community Economic Development report revealed that more than half of all Latino households in California, or 1.6 million families, are struggling to cover basic bills such as housing, food, and electricity. The state has a very high cost of living. Monthly rent, education, even medical expenses are higher than in other places. If you only make minimum wage in California, it's very difficult to get by. California has had a steady economic growth. 
the state registering as the fifth strongest economy in the world. Yet despite working multiple jobs, California's Latino residents have difficulty staying afloat. The lack of understanding on how money works. Even if we earn little money, if we save some and invest it, tomorrow it can turn into another source of income. This economist says that the key to overcoming the high cost of living in California is getting an education that can then lead to better employment. We need more people to get either formal or technical training so they can rise up and get ahead. Reported by Dulce Castellano, this is Azul Álvarez, U News. He's a Miami native of Cuban descent and stars in some of the most recognizable shows on TV. Our own Media Maria sat down with Danny Pino to discuss playing a cartel boss and navigating Hollywood as a Latino. You know, Latinos aren't monolithic. Okay. We're not we're not cookie cutter. We're not all the same. Miami native actor Danny Pino stars in Mayans MC, the hit biker drama and FX set in California's border with Mexico. It's a show made up of a largely Latino cast and serves as a spin-off to the longtime running Sons of Anarchy. Pino plays Miguel Galindo. He is the head of a cartel, but he's the head of a cartel by way of, you know, private boarding schools in the U.S. So he's, you know, incredibly academic, uh, strategic, thoughtful, uh, all of those things. He's also incredibly violent and he's capable of atrocities. Pino has played a number of diverse roles, from a law-abiding detective in Cold Case and Law and Order SVU to the head of a cartel in Mayans MC. I know it's really easy politically now to lump everybody together mm -hmm. and to say this group of people is like that and this group of people is like that. And, you know, you take the least common denominator of the population and they'll believe that, right? But for people who can think outside of the box and think for themselves and not be led by false prophets, uh, I think that those people are ready for a more nuanced conversation, and that includes in entertainment. And he also had a lot to say about representation. We've come a very long way, but I think we have a long way to go. You know, before we were just lucky to be invited to the party, right? <laughs> right. And, and now it's time to say, you know what, we're enough to lead. Beyond acting, Pino is not afraid to get into politics and issues that affect his community. I feel an incredible amount of pride being Cuban. Uh, I also feel an incredible amount of sadness. I find that being Cuban means that I need to speak for Cubans okay. oftentimes. If I'm the only Cuban in the room and somebody comes in wearing a Che Guevara t-shirt, I have to express to them as to why that offends me. And it's also important for him to share his roots with his kids. I'm married to a Colombian. Mm -hmm. uh, Lily's, her family's from Cali. Okay. And so our, our kids are Caluban. I like right? that. <laughs> Our two boys are Kalubans. Uh, and we recently took them to Cartagena, we took them to Bogota. I felt like it was important to show them that heritage, right? Mm -hmm. uh, that's where they're from. And at some point, I'd like to do that for them in Cuba, right? But not under these circumstances, not under this regime. Uh, I don't want to teach my kids oppression. But he does believe there's still hope for change on the island his parents had to flee from. I guess it was right around New Year's, everybody would say, el año que viene en La Habana, right? El año que viene en Cuba, right? Well, we've been saying that for decades now, right? But I think you have to maintain that hope, right? Uh, so, el año que viene. Miriam Arias, U News.
Thanks for listening to You News, the podcast. Don't forget to follow You News on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you haven't yet, go to your favorite podcast platform and subscribe, rate, and review. Join us tomorrow for a new episode. Until then.